0: once again. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 and verse 1, if you would, uh, read along with me. Again, starting in verse 1. or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you once again with all humility as we approach this text, this important portion of scripture the Ten Commandments, Lord, the foundation to the law, these words that you spoke from your own voice from the mountain at Mount Sinai, Lord. God, I pray as we look at this Tenth Commandment, Lord, that you would convict our spirit where we seek and desire and covet things, Lord, that are forbidden, that are not ours, that are things that will rob our joy things that would distract us from you. God, I pray this morning that you are with us as we examine this commandment, that we see that that desire and passion and, and love and worship, these are all good things if they're aimed towards you. I pray that we are a church that is passionate, a church that desires God, I pray that you keep us away from the things that we ought not to desire. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we look at this important commandment, Lord, this important important portion of Scripture. In your Son's name, amen. We find ourselves today on the tenth and final commandment, and in a lot of ways, I really believe that this is the most important commandment, maybe next to the first, because... The 10th commandment deals directly with the heart. Again, if you would look at verse 17, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting is a heart issue. Now, today's sermon is going to be a little bit different than the sermons that I have been preaching through the Ten Commandments. I don't have three points that kind of build off each other with a kind of a logical flow. Instead, I have five observations of the Tenth Commandment that are connected. They're loosely connected, but they're connected by an extremely important point, and that extremely important point is that coveting is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. That'll be the underlining theme throughout all these observations. So let's just jump right in to these five different observations of the Tenth Commandment. The first observation is this, and it's one that I've mentioned a number of times already. The First and the Tenth Commandments are connected. The First and the Tenth Commandments are connected. Again, we've talked about this before. In fact, we talked about this last week. The Ten Commandments begin and end with internal thoughts It begin and end, in other words, with the heart, not external actions. In fact, if you outline the Ten Commandments, one of the ways you can outline it, it's kind of interesting, it could go like this, thoughts, words, deeds, deeds, words, thoughts. If you missed last week's sermon, I explained that a little bit further, but for today, I want to look and focus on the first and tenth commandment. If you would, look at the first commandment. It's found in verse 3. It says this. You shall have no other gods before me. This, as we learned when we went through the first commandment, has to do with worship. We are to worship God alone, not other gods. Worship is a heart issue. Worship happens in the heart. Now look at the tenth commandment. This is verse 17. You shall not covet. Again, that's internal. It's something that happens internally. Coveting happens within the heart. It's a desire within our heart. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Again, that's internal thoughts. Therefore, the first and tenth commandment has to do with internal thoughts. It has to do with the heart. Meaning, the book ends of the ten commandments. Just think about this. The very first thing you read and the very last thing you read when you come to the ten commandments teaches us that God is concerned with the heart. With our internal thoughts. Not just our external thoughts. One theologian put it this way. The first and the tenth commandments teach us that the Torah or the law is concerned with the state of one's soul, with the heart. In other words, the state of one's soul, and not only with external actions. And of course, as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, we've seen that this is exactly how Jesus interpreted the Ten Commandments. But we learn that from within the Ten Commandments itself. The First and Tenth Commandments teach us that God is concerned with the heart. So that's the first observation. The second observation I want to point out of the Tenth Commandment is this. The Tenth Commandment teaches us that God is the only perfect judge because He is the only one who can judge the heart. God is the only perfect judge Because he's the only one who can judge the heart. I asked this question last week, but let me ask it again. What is the immediate context of the Ten Commandments? What's the immediate context of the Ten Commandments? It's not not us. It's not the church. It's not you and me. What's the immediate context? It's Israel. Mount Sinai. God's speaking from the fire. It's the Exodus. It's the Mosaic Covenant. The law was given, in other words, to a nation. The Ten Commandments was given to Israel. And we learned last week, one of the main purposes of the law was to teach Israel how to govern itself. As a nation, the people were not to murder, steal. They were not to commit adultery. They were not to bear false witness and so on. And... If an Israelite broke one of these laws, they were to be punished appropriately. In other words, Israel was called to punish the murderer. Genesis 9-6 makes this clear. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Israel was called to punish the adulterer. Leviticus 20-10, if a man commits adultery... With the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Again, Israel was commanded by God within the law itself to administrate justice, to punish those who worship idols, take God's name in vain, don't keep the Sabbath. They were to punish the rebel against his own parents person who commits murder who committed adultery, who steals, who bears false witness Israel was to punish those who broke the commandments but then we get to the 10th commandment and let me ask the question how can you punish someone for coveting? I mean just think about that for a second you can't as a human you can't especially if that person doesn't act out on their coveting It's something that happens within the heart. Therefore, in one real sense, the Tenth Commandment is an unenforceable law. It's a law that only God can judge and enforce. It's a law that only God can administrate the appropriate punishment when it's broken. And I want to be clear on this because it seems like it's a minor point, but it really isn't. It's not a minor point. Because it forces you to ask a question. If this law is unenforceable, then why would God include it within the Ten Commandments? And here's the answer. It showed Israel, and it really shows us as we go through the Ten Commandments, it shows the followers of God that only God is the perfect judge. Because only God knows the heart. Only God could judge on a heart level. In fact, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says this, But but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Why would Paul say this? Because Paul knows that no human, including himself, can judge perfectly. Because no human can judge the heart. Only God knows the heart of man. This means there will be, there will never be perfect justice in this life. There will never be perfect justice in this life. And I think we all know this. We long for justice we watch the news as we get frustrated with politics as we look around our culture this is especially true if you've experienced evil we long for justice we long for a day when evil will be dealt with in fact we see this longing within the heart of man especially in the the psalms where author after author cries out to God for justice of the evil that they're experiencing. We long for justice, but the Tenth Commandment makes it very clear there will be no perfect justice in this life because man does not know the heart. It's only when Jesus comes that perfect justice will be administrated. Because we need a judge who knows the heart of man and again the 10th commandment makes that clear it's an unenforceable commandment but that's only true in human courtrooms in the divine courtroom God will hold us accountable to it it's coveting this leads to the next observation my third observation this morning in the sermon is this the 10th commandment teaches us that we are foremost accountable to God, not man. We are primarily accountable to God, not man. If coveting is a heart issue and only God knows the heart of man, then it's clear that we are primarily accountable to God, not man. If you would turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. jumping around scripture a couple different places, but if you have your scriptures, I would like you to turn to Psalm 51. There's a couple different things I'd like you to see within the word. Starting in verse 1, it says this, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy.'" bolt out my transgressions. David here is crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness. And it's clear why, because look at the heading. A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David is asking, he's crying out to God for forgiveness, for committing adultery with Bathsheba. For breaking the seventh commandment, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. And not only that, for for murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, for breaking the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. David was asking for forgiveness for adultery and murder. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, how can David say this? How can he say you and you only? Didn't he sin against both Bathsheba and Uriah? And in fact, the consequences of David's sins was felt throughout all of Israel, being the king of Israel. How could David say against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Let me ask a question. Why is murder, why is the murder of Uriah such a horrific act? Now, if you read through the story with, which I, I think most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. If you read through the story, intuitively we know it's evil and we know it's wrong. But why was the murder of Uriah so horrific? Let me just ask this in a different way, biblically speaking. Why is murder so horrific? Why is murder a sin? We spent time on this. It's because man is made in the image of God. Man is valuable because he bears the image of God. In fact, the passage I just read... Genesis 9-6 says this whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image therefore when you kill an innocent human what you're really doing is attacking God you're attacking the image of God therefore murder is primarily a sin against God well what about adultery what about David's sin with Bathsheba Let me ask this question. Why is marriage so sacred? So much so that adultery is a horrendous evil. So much so that it was a capital offense in the Old Testament. Well, we went over this when we went through the seventh commandment. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, it says this in Ephesians 5, verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When you commit adultery, you're not only breaking the marriage covenant, but you're also misrepresenting the, Christ's love for the church. You're misrepresenting Christ's faithfulness, his commitment to his bride, the church. You're breaking a covenant, in other words, that Paul says refers to Christ and the church, meaning both murder and adultery are primarily attacks against God and his character. But I want to go a little bit further than this. How did David's sin start? What led to adultery and murder? Where did David's sin with Bathsheba start? It started within the heart. It started with coveting. It started with a sinful desire within the heart. If you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, says this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very I believe the author included that last part the woman was very beautiful to show us that David desired her that David was lusting after her because David saw that she was very beautiful verse 3 and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is it not is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite Now, what does the 10th commandment say? It says this, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. David broke the 10th commandment. He broke the 10th commandment before he broke anything else. And where did this coveting lead him? Well, verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. He committed adultery. Listen, coveting was the very first sin that led to adultery. It was the first sin that led to all the lies. It was the first sin that eventually snowballed into murder. Here's the point. David sinned against God first. David sinned against God first within his heart. Because coveting is a direct assault on the goodness of God. It's a direct assault on the character of God. Coveting is equal to telling God, I'm not happy with what you have given me. I want more. I deserve more. I want that. Or in David's case, I want her. It's a direct result on the character of God because it says, God, you are not good enough. In fact, you are not good because you haven't given me what I want. Now, think about at this point in David's life, all That God has given him. He was keen. He was powerful. He was rich. Scriptures even make it very clear he was handsome. And more than any of that, God gave David his spirit. God gave David his favor. God gave David grace. And David took all of that and said, It's not good enough. It's not good enough. I want more. Just as a kind of a side note to make this personal. What has God given you? Let me just say this. If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to hear what God has given you. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. In other words, God gave His Son for you. Romans eight thirty one says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will not also with Him graciously give us all things? God give His Son, uh, He's going to be willing to give us all things. And you know what? He does give us all things because Ephesians 1, 3 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In other words, God has given us everything. Every spiritual blessing. Therefore, when we covet within our hearts, even before we act out on it, you know what you're telling God? You're saying every spiritual blessing is not good enough. You're saying within your heart to God, your son is not good enough. I want more. I want This is why David said in Psalm 51, four, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David just had a clear understanding of his sin, even though he sinned against Bathsheba, even though for sure he sinned against Uriah, even though he sinned against all of Israel, being the king of Israel. Primarily, he sinned against God. this is what the tenth commandment teaches us we are primarily accountable to god and when we sin we are primarily sinning against god and this leads me to my next observation my fourth observation this morning the tenth commandment has to do with desire the tenth commandment has to do with with desire. If you would, turn back to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. Now as you're turning there, I just want to be clear on what the 10th commandment doesn't say. The 10th commandment doesn't say this. You shall not covet. Look at verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17. Look at what it says. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, this is important because coveting within itself is not the sin. I want you to be clear on this. In fact, the Hebrew word translated covet here really just means desire. It means desire. It has a connotation of desire, take pleasure in, treasure. It's something that that we treasure within our hearts. Desire passionately. It really could be translated, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. You shall not desire your neighbor's wife. Again, it's not that desire within itself is evil makes desire or coveting evil is what we desire we desire something that belongs to someone else or that's forbidden it's how we desire it we desire it with evil intent it's why we desire it we desire something of our neighbors because we are discontent with our own estate or what we have now, let me be clear again to get this point across desire within itself is not evil in fact there's false religions out there that that make this claim buddhism is one of them the goal is to get rid of desire and i see this a lot within christian circles that 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 we think desire within itself somehow is evil it's not in fact we were made to desire We are made to desire, and desire is a good thing. It's only a sin when we desire what we shouldn't, or we desire something that we should too much. That's not God. Let me show you what I mean. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now this is obviously a very familiar portion of Scripture for here for us here at Country Oaks. We find ourselves going back to Genesis 1 through 3 often because it's so foundational to the rest of Scripture. Genesis 3, verse 1, who would follow along with me? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God Now, I want you to listen to the temptation. It's found in verse 5. The serpent is still talking to the woman. He says this. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the temptation. The temptation is that you will be like God, or another way of saying this, that you can be your own God. Not having to go to God to know the difference between good and evil. Verse 6, listen to this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, let me just stop here. Guess what Hebrew word is translated desired? It's the same exact word that we see in the 10th commandment, translated covet. In other words, Eve coveted. Eve desired the fruit. She desired what God had forbidden. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. In other words, Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, and it all started with a wrong desire. It all started with a sinful desire. But again, I want to be clear. It's not that desire within itself is evil. I know this because it's pretty clear. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 now. Just so you know, chapter 3 is the fall, meaning chapters 1 and 2 is before the fall, Chapters 2, verse 9, or chapter 2, verse 9, in other words, is before the fall. It says this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant. Guess what Hebrew word is used here? The same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 3, translated desire. In other words, Every tree in the garden was desirable. Not just the forbidden tree. Every tree was pleasant. Was pleasant to the sight and good for food. God made all the trees in the garden desirable. Just think about that for a second. I mean, this is so important. That God made made the garden desirable. This really shows the character of God. In fact, if you're under the age of twenty, listen to this. Because I, I sometimes think we picture God in heaven as this like cosmic killjoy. Like standing up there with his arms crossed, waiting for us to stumble. Forbidding all the things on this earth that are pleasurable. But that's not true. In fact, that's the same lie that Satan gave to Eve. God made the garden pleasurable. He made the garden desirable. He made it joy-filled. Sin happened when Eve traded that pleasure the pleasures of the garden the pleasure of having a relationship with god traded that pleasure and desired something that was forbidden and let me ask this because again this is important to understand the character of god who this god is why was the forbidden fruit forbidden well god told adam and eve genesis two sixteen. he says this for the The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Because it would bring death. It would bring suffering. It would bring disaster. In fact, you want to talk about pain, within one chapter, Eve's oldest son kills the next born. Meaning a mother had to watch his oldest son, her oldest son, murder her other son. There is a reason why God said, don't eat that fruit. This means God commanded Adam and Eve to eat the fruit of the garden that would bring life, joy, and satisfaction. And at the same exact time, he commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the forbidden fruit because it would bring death. Meaning God's not a killjoy. God commanded Adam and Eve to pursue joy and pleasure with everything they have. And he commanded Adam and Eve to stay away from what would bring death, pain, and suffering. God is not a killjoy. Again, that's a lie from Satan. The truth is God wants us to seek joy and to seek joy in its fullest. This whole temptation with Eve and this back and forth with Satan reminds me really of one verse in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, For my people have committed two evils. God's talking about the Israelites here, but this really could be Adam and Eve. They committed two evils. First, they had forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They had forsaken, in other words, what brings life, what brings true lasting joy, what would bring satisfaction. They had forsaken me, that's God, the fountain of living water. That's the first evil. They turned from that, and the second evil is this. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. In other words, the, the Israelites, there's this picture of them digging out holes in the dry gown in search of water. And they made broken cisterns that could hold no water. God's people, in other words, exchanged living water for cisterns that can hold no water. The analogy is is pretty straightforward. It's someone that's thirsty. And what's thirsty have to do with this? When you're thirsty, you desire something. What do you desire? Water. This has to do with desire. It's a person that's desiring water more than anything else. And I really think this is an analogy of all of us. We have this desire in us that drives us every single day. It's a desire that can only be filled by God himself. This man that's thirsty, in fact, dying of thirst. He has this desire for water, and God offers this person the fountain of living water, which is himself. And this person's saying, no, I don't want that. It's the first evil. I'd rather have broken cisterns that can hold no water. I'll I'll seek for water in the dried. You know what the living water represents? It represents the everlasting joy and satisfaction found in a relationship with God. You know what the broken cisterns that hold no water represent? The world. And all its empty promises. The fleeting pleasures that are offered in worldliness. Listen, God wants us to desire But he wants us to desire the one thing that will bring true and lasting joy. A relationship with him. This brings me to my last observation this morning. And it's this. Only contentment in our relationship with God will keep us from breaking the 10th commandment. Only contentment in our relationship with God, will keep us from breaking the 10th commandment. John Piper wrote this We kill the sin of covetousness by being satisfied with all that God promises to be for us through Jesus Christ. This is the great battle to be satisfied in God, to be content in our relationship with God and say, I don't need anything else. That's it. Paul says this in Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. In other words, I know how to be poor. And I know how to abound. I know how to be rich. In any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry abundance and need paul was that secret paul knew the the secret of contentment and because of this secret paul was absolutely and completely joy-filled Just read the book of Philippians and underline underline the word joy every time you come across it. But what is that secret, Paul? What is the secret of being content? Simply this. Valuing your relationship with God over everything else. Valuing your relationship with God over everything else. Paul already told us what the secret is in Philippians 4 verse 8. He says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's worth more than everything. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For Paul, all he needed was Christ." All he needed was his relationship with Christ. You know, somewhere in Paul's life, I don't know if when he was knocked to his knees and his way to Damascus when he was saved. I don't know if it was somewhere during the sanctification process as God put him through trial after trial after trial after trial. I don't know where, but somewhere, Paul realized that true satisfaction, true joy, and lasting pleasure was only found in a relationship with God. And he said, I'm doing whatever it takes to get that. I'm doing whatever it takes to pursue it, to get more of that. Therefore, he pursued Christ with everything he had. For his sake, Christ, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ paul found joy because he can confidently say because he confidently believed to live is christ and to die is gain why is it gain because i'll be with christ Let me end by just asking this question are you content are you content? are you joy-filled are you joy-filled because you know to live is Christ and to die is gain I mean if you if you really believe that like Paul did then there's nothing anyone can take from you. <laughs> Because to live is Christ. Well, what if you kill you? Well, to die is gain. <laughs> do you value your relationship with God over everything else? Or do you covet worldly things? Do you desire worldly things? Are you seeking out joy in broken cisterns that cannot hold water. It's a lie of the devil. There's something in this world that can replace God, that can can fill that thirstiness that's within our soul. So here's my plea to you. And this is for both believers and non-believers. Let me just plead with you. Passionately, I love that word. Passionately, in other words, with with great desire. Passionately, with great desire, pursue a relationship with God. Trusting, having faith that that's where joy and satisfaction is found. Passionately, seek after living water. Find life. Find true life. pray that we are a church that is passionate. God, I I pray you just rid this church of the the lie that that we should not desire, that desire is the issue. That we shouldn't seek joy or pleasure. That we we would get rid of that lie and that we would understand that we are to seek joy and pleasure passionately with desire and only in you the reason we are to seek it only in you is because you are so gracious that you won't let us seek it in other things you you command us to seek it in you because that's where true joy and satisfaction is found God I pray that the spirit just exposes our hearts and, and my heart included Lord show us, Lord, where we are coveting things that we shouldn't, where we are seeking joy and satisfaction in things that that will ultimately lead to emptiness. God, help us to repent from that and turn to you, knowing you're gracious. Help us to, to repent from that and turn to your Son, Lord, knowing that is the life and the way and the truth, that it's only through him, Lord, that we can find a relationship with you, and it's only through your glory and a relationship with you that we can find true and lasting satisfaction. And may you be glorified and help us to find joy in that glory, in your son's name.